0: how can we understand humans as a species? Um, We certainly vary in all sorts of ways in relationship to ecological, social, cultural pressures. But uh, at the same time, I want to suggest that we have uh, a need, if we're going to understand uh, patterns of human violence, uh, to take uh, a kind of a deep evolutionary look at uh, something to do with averages. So now, the the way that... um, For hundreds of years, actually, people have thought about the essential nature of humans with regard to violence is in uh, one of two which are represented here by these icons. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, who represents the selfish, violent uh, part of humans, uh, the need for a leviathan, a government or a king to control the violence. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, represents the notion that people are inherently cooperative, uh, gentle temperaments, and non-violent. And if you take one view, then uh, it tends to exclude the other. So if you are a follower of Rousseau, you say, well, basically humans are uh, just utterly nice people, and sometimes they go nuts when an evil ideology or uh, some other kind of disturbance uh, comes in to break the peace. And uh, or you can take a Hobbesian view and say uh, we had to work incredibly hard to be able to get rid of the socialization for aggression and eventually make ourselves uh, more peaceful. Well, uh, of course, a resolution of this is what uh, Chris Boehm, among others, uh, suggested 15 years ago, which is that the answer is uh, both of these things are true but in that case, how can both things be true? Because they seem to be opposites. So that's what I want to address and the mechanism I want to uh, bring in here is the notion that we should be paying more attention than we have to the possibility that uh, humans have been subject to two different kinds of selective pressure with regard to two different kinds of aggression. So one of them is, uh, we'll call it proactive, predatory, premeditated aggression. Uh, The aggression that results from men sitting around a campfire saying to themselves, you know, those bastards who live five miles away, they really deserve us to go and raid them. And the other, the reactive, uh, impulsive, explosive, um, uh, is, uh, is what happens when uh, two men in a bar, uh, after too much drink, uh, one of them says, your mother's ugly, and the other one says, no, you know, you live in a farmyard with your daughter. And uh, all of a sudden, they go out and have a fight on the uh, parking lot, which is in fact the commonest form of American murder uh, in the parking lot outside the bar. So I want to suggest that these two are separable and usefully separable. And I understand that in doing this, I'm bound to be very simplistic. Uh, It is certainly the case that any individual has a propensity for both of these and any individual action can involve both of these forms. But nevertheless, people all over the map have found it useful to make a distinction here. So developmental psychologists find it useful to distinguish children according to their propensity for reactive or proactive aggression. And uh, psychiatrists, the same with adults. In fact, it's becoming uh, an important diagnostic tool in thinking about domestic abuse. There are psychopathologies where you have... um, Uh, explosive disorders, on the one hand uh, fitting the reactive, and uh, psychopathy, which is more associated with uh, proactive aggression. You've got experimental models of uh, types uh, using the same species that uh, Donald Pfaff spoke about uh, recently. And, uh, And then you've got observational models that tell the story. I mean, these photographs are of Uh, On the one hand, uh, on the left, you've got baboons escalating a fight. That's uh, reactive aggression. On the other hand, you've got baboons doing what Ann Pusey was describing for lions, where uh, males will stalk infants, not out of uh, any kind of uh, uh, explosive reaction, but just deliberately to go and kill. Okay, so... um, What we're talking about here are uh, these two different types and um, I'm gonna suggest they've been subject to different kinds of selection pressure. So I wanna just emphasize the possibility that uh, there are different mechanisms, sufficiently different, that selection can act in different ways on them. Reactive aggression. You've got the trigger being some kind of upset. Somebody is in your face. You're highly aroused. The thing gets going quickly And uh, the aim of the reactive aggression is to get rid of whatever it is that's in your face. And uh, the target is quite easily switched, so all of a sudden you you don't want to be near that guy in the bar who's having a row with the one who said his mother is ugly. On the other hand, you've got the proactive, where a desire is conceived for something, whether it's power or status or money or women or whatever it is. And with low arousal, you plan the thing, and the aim is to achieve a goal. It's not to just lash out at anyone who's there. Uh, You stay with your consistent target. One of the interesting features of these two different styles of aggression is that no drugs are known, I believe that is still correct, uh, that can interfere effectively with proactive aggression. Whereas with reactive aggression, you've got your SSRIs that can indeed, fitting with what uh, Donald Pfaff was saying earlier, uh, interfere with um, the uh, low serotonin problem. And uh, if we look at the animal models, we have evidence of uh, different uh, mechanisms in terms of uh, brain activation. So reactive aggression uh, is activated through the mediobasal part of the hypothalamus, proactive by the lateral, and so on. Uh, there are particularly dramatic experiments by Adrian Rain and colleagues showing that um, low prefrontal cortex activity is associated with murdering in a reactive rage. Uh, but not with um, uh, proactive murderers. So uh, if we can establish that these two kinds of aggression are different, then let's think about, first of all, chimpanzees. So intergroup violence in chimpanzees. The pattern of uh, intergroup violence is uh, that um, a a large group, uh, on average eight, according to the latest data, target a lone individual, a massive imbalance of power, Now, they target them by finding them as a result of going on a border patrol that we heard about and sometimes making what's called commando raids, making a deep penetration into a neighboring territory looking for opportunities to attack somebody. There is no provocation. There is no evidence that this is the result of a shortage of food or a shortage of females. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's more likely to happen when there is more food, if anything, uh, at least that is the expectation, because that's when larger groups can uh, more easily be formed. They get very excited about the opportunity to, to make these kills, but they only do it when they are completely safe. In fact, a remarkable feature of these attacks is that uh, in killing an individual who is fighting for his life, none of them have yet been seen to be hurt badly out of uh, what are we? 152 kills recorded uh, so far. So, of course, the killing is meant to be adaptive, uh, even though there's still a tweak of uh, of worry about exactly how you solve the collective action problem of of getting everybody to be involved in that. But, as we heard today, there are various kinds of benefits. So, the implication of uh, what I would like to call the imbalance of power hypothesis is that you had in the past, in the EEA, the uh, Environmental Evolutionary adaptiveness. Uh, During the Paleolithic, you've had uh, extreme imbalances of power occurring commonly for chimpanzees, very low risk of death for the aggressors because you've got enough of them, 8 to 1. And under these conditions, natural selection is favouring a tendency for unprovoked killing because it tends to lead to success of the type we heard about this morning. So that's proactive aggression being directly favoured. Okay, now... Here is a description of war in the Andaman Islands. uh, The uh, ultimate place for starting hunter-gatherers in many ways, because you've got an entire archipelago with no farmers there until very recently. And the whole art of fighting was said to be to come upon your enemies by surprise, kill one or two of them, and then retreat. The aim of the attacking party was to kill the men. How incredibly chimp-like is that? All right, so does that mean that we can apply the imbalance of power hypothesis to the Andaman Islands? where we would say extreme imbalances of power occur commonly in the Paleolithic, a low risk of death for the aggressors, and natural selection, favoring unprovoked killing among those people. That's the hypothesis that I I want to put forward, that we've had a a parallel between humans and chimps. So I'm not using chimps as an evolutionary model, as a phylogenetic continuity. That's a different question. This is just a parallel example of the way life seems to work. So uh, there's a, a challenge, there are various challenges, but I just want to just mention this one, which is that um, there's a lot of variation among hunters and gatherers. Uh, and you will find people who draw attention to um, uh, the fact that many hunters and gatherers have peaceful relationships with their neighbors. If that's the case on a systematic basis, in ways that echo the conditions in the Paleolithic, then there would have been little opportunity for selection to favor proactive aggression. Well, to cut a long story short, I suggest that um, the cases where we have hunters and gatherers being frequently peaceful with their neighbours fall into two categories. One is where the neighbours are members of their own society. And so I totally acknowledge and accept that within societies, within the 500 or 1,000 people that typically make up a hunter-gatherer society, within that collection of, of bands, then... Typically, you have lots of peaceful relationships among those bands. But what about between societies, between different ethno linguistic groups, where it's not so easy to communicate because you're speaking different languages or or different dialects? Well, I I would like to to draw attention to uh, this example of the Central Inuit, uh, a peaceful society as listed. Their present attitude is well expressed in a speech. In olden times, we fought so that the blood ran over the ground. Now we fight with button blankets and other kinds of property. Life changes. Uh, these are people who uh, know how to respond to change circumstance. I want to suggest that where we see peaceful relationships between neighboring hunter gatherer groups or hunter gatherer groups with a neighboring society of another type, such as uh, farmers, then their nonviolence is very sensible and strategic. But it doesn't tell us much about what it would have been like in the Paleolithic. So, in order to do that, we need to think about where hunters and gatherers are neighbored by other hunters and gatherers of a different ethno-linguistic group, a different language. And that means we go to a world system. And if in the world systems we find the kind of conditions that would lead to proactive aggression, then we're on the right track. Well, there are not many nomadic hunter-gatherer world systems. People might quarrel with this particular selection of, of six, uh, maybe add one or two others, and maybe the Ache. Um, but uh, uh, this is what uh, Luke Glawacki and I uh, did uh, work with, um, systems where the war is anarchic because there's nobody coming in and being able to intervene on behalf of either different society. They're totally independent. And uh, in those, we uh, looked at the various kinds of um, behavioural that are related to war. Um, and they all shoot on sight. Uh, and they all have ambushes and, and raids. Uh, in these systems where you have neighboring hunters and gatherers of different ethnolinguistic linguistic groups, then uh, we found that war is extremely predictable. And the shooting on site is kind of a startling one, but uh, you, know, you see these descriptions of some uh, uh, weak uh, Inupiaq man uh, having survived uh, some terrible accident at sea, struggling up onto a nice floe, seeing some people, and what do they do? Do they offer him a cup of tea? No, they kill him. That sort of thing suggests uh, to me that uh, this is very uh, systematic. As for the rates of killing, um, there is, of course, tremendous variation. Here are rates compiled by Lawrence Keeley uh, in his uh, 1996 book some time ago, combined with some estimates of chimpanzee rates of killing. The chimpanzees are very poor, will certainly uh, get better over the years. In fact, we could already get a little bit better than these ones. What we see is that there's a, a range of variation because each of these bars represents a different human society. Uh, wide variation, but but a, a median that is uh, sort of in the same order of magnitude. That's what I want you to remember about about this. So I want to suggest that uh, yes, um, in hunters and gatherers living with other uh, hunters and gatherers as neighbours then uh, they may well have had the uh, kind of environment in which, like chimpanzees, it pays to kill your neighbors when you have the opportunity to do so safely. And that means that selection would favor proactive aggression. Well, what about reactive aggression? Here uh, we have a striking contrast uh, because, as others have already mentioned, uh, in, uh, within societies you have very low rates of um, uh, of fighting. Now, uh, let me just give one uh, example from my own uh, experience. I, I studied chimpanzees, and if you're out with chimpanzees, it's pretty rare not to see aggression uh, every week uh, that you're out all day. Uh, I spent uh, nine months uh, living with uh, laissez farmers and FA uh, hunters, in the Congo, and uh, was really disappointed that, oh gosh, it's so boring, there are no fights. Uh, But this is fairly typical. Uh, Here is uh, a little bit of data from uh, the uh, chimpanzees um, in a couple of societies, a couple of populations, uh, looking at the rates of physical aggression involving males and females. And then on the right you've got humans from a population uh, where it seemed that they were actually uh, having rather more fights than than some. And what you see is two orders of magnitude difference. Uh, Somewhere between 150 and more than 500 to one, depending on uh, exactly what uh, samples you're looking at. Humans fighting enormously less than, than chimpanzees. You've been a very good audience, well done not fighting. But then you're not chimpanzees. So I want to uh, draw attention to this big difference and put it in the framework of thinking about proactive and reactive aggression. Uh, so we've got a similar high frequency of intergroup killing to chimpanzees. They, we do it when it was safe. It's strategic. It's not automatic. So that's the good news about it's easy to tone it down in humans. Um, but it is proactive in the sense of seeking opportunities and planning the attack. And then we've got, on the other hand, a very low frequency of face-to-face fighting, which is risky. You get hurt when you do that. And so people uh, avoid confrontations, uh, but nevertheless, arguments happen, and alcohol makes that particularly bad. So we're different from chimpanzees. We've got a different uh, degree of uh, modulation of these Two types of aggression. And then the question, of course, that's fascinating is, with reactive aggression, uh, what is it about humans that means that we have strongly down-regulated it compared to what we can um, imagine for a chimpanzee-like ancestor or at least compared to uh, probably the majority of primates. And we can look back in the past and get some fascinating correlations maybe Craniofacial feminization is an indication of reduced aggression, uh, it's not uh, definite. We see increased craniofacial feminization uh, as we approach the, the modern era and some people have suggested that that might be related to downregulated, reactive aggression as we get more fem- female in our males in particular. Various ideas have been suggested for where this comes from. I'm not going to get into them. There isn't time. But uh, just to say that people are starting to to think about that. The prospect, I think, is exciting for being able to imagine, understanding where the downregulation of reactive aggression comes from. The important point for the moment is the contrast in uh, humans in these two forms. And so what it means when we come back to our icons for the two different styles of aggression uh, is that um, selection has indeed favoured the kind of aggression represented by both of these. And what, of course, is exciting, as Josh Goldstein in his Winning the War on War and Steve Pinker in his Better Angels of Our Nature have drawn attention to, is the declining rates of violence, which all reflect the fact that uh, the peaceful, cooperative, downregulated reactive aggression uh, represented by Rousseau is able to have some effects on our proactive style. Thank you.